0: Hey, welcome back to the Barrelproof Baseball Podcast. Today, I have new facial hair. And also, um, I'm joined by Stephen Corgan. Uh, Stephen is the head blender and head distiller at 1-8 Distillery out of Washington, D.C. So, uh, they're making district-made spirits. They've got all sorts of different things. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed tasting through the different bottles, uh, different samples that Steven and their crew sent out to me. I really like their stuff a lot. Um, I feel like I've said this a few times, not every time, but I've said it a few times. There's a number of bottles or samples that people have sent me that I'm absolutely going to go out and buy for myself. Um, because I've tried them out, drank through them with people from the distilleries, really enjoyed them. Um, and I want to support them. I appreciate them sending me samples or bottles, um, and I'd like to support them, uh, and this is definitely one of those that I will be buying for myself. One um, Eight Distillery is making really good stuff. Um, they've got a rye that I really like. They've got a bourbon. They had a gin. They had all sorts of stuff that I felt was super interesting, really tasty. Um, you know, I think they're on Sealbox or Drizzly or one of those, so I'm definitely going to buy it really enjoyed it. Um, I, I I really liked my conversation with Steven. This is a super bright dude. He is very well versed in uh, just whiskey in general. And it was a lot of fun talking to him. He's super smart. Um, loved enjoyed, loved talking the process with him and, and especially about um, the whiskey coming out of the mid-Atlantic region, because this isn't an area that I think a lot of people think of immediately when we think of whiskey or bourbons. Um, but there's a lot of rye that's coming from that region. And because of that, they're making really good stuff. So I think this is one worth checking out. I think you'll really enjoy it. The price is very good. The spirit's good. I'm in. It's a good combo. So check out this conversation with Steven. Really, uh, really thought highly of this. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. I think this is one that if you listen to it, um, you'll probably want to get yourself some bottles of it so check it out if you're uh, watching this on the on youtube check out my facial hair i look amazing um if you're not if you're listening on apple or one of those you're really missing out um let's see what's the other thing oh check out the links in the description box below and help support the channel I've got patreon amazon store bottomless coffee walk-offs and whiskey manscaped um yeah that's it Check those out. Click on them. Spend money. All right. Enjoy it. Stephen Corgan, 1-8 Distillery. Bye. All right. Stephen Corgan, uh, distiller and head blender of 1-8 Distillery. Correct. That is that. That's uh, a, is it, yeah. Those. That's your role, huh?
1: Yep. That's uh. That's what I do. That's how I fill my days. So uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely a fun way to uh, spend one's professional life. Can't complain.
0: Yeah, it could be. It could be a lot worse than that. It could
1: be a lot worse than that, <laughs> that for sure.
0: So tell me, tell me uh, first. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, how'd you get into? the spirits industry and, and, uh, kind of take me through that, that, uh, transition, if you will.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I definitely took a very circuitous route to it as I think a lot of people in the craft spirits world do. Um, you know, definitely wasn't born into it. I'm not a, a third or fourth generation distiller my old grandpappy didn't do it. Um, but, uh, so I started out a college, I was, I was living in Chicago, we were talking a little bit about Chicago earlier, um, worked in finance, got a desk job, graduated with a degree in economics, uh, very quickly learned that a desk job was not exactly what I wanted to be doing with my time. Uh, so I sort of started looking around for other things to do. And during my time uh, living in Chicago, I'd gotten hooked up with a bunch of people doing community gardening, kind of urban farming and that kind of stuff and really fell in love with just kind of that physical, uh, work of getting your hands dirty and having a tangible product at the end of the day. It was something that I really fell in love with. So, um, I went back to school for organic agriculture and kind of did that for a number of years, kind of mostly working in, uh, sustainable fruit and vegetable production. And during that time got really interested in alcohol, uh, both from the, I mean, I was interested in alcohol beforehand, but mostly as on the consumer side of it. Um, but I got really interested in how people grow the ingredients for it and go through all the production steps for it. So uh, my first foray was uh, more into the wine world. So I um, worked at a couple of different wineries in Europe, uh, in Germany, and Italy, um, and then came back to the East Coast, the U.S., um, and tried to do it up in New England. Uh, which was fun and enjoyable from a, a, a production standpoint. But in terms of the quality of the, of the wine, we were making probably not the highest caliber to be growing grapes and making wine in, in Maine and New Hampshire. Um, but while I was up in Maine, um, I did get an introduction to distilling from uh, a, a winery that I worked at that had a uh, both wine production and a uh, spirit side to the business as well. And that's where I, I kind of, really saw that this is the avenue that I thought a lot of uh, producers who are interested in making really high quality alcohol from ingredients that were specifically produced in the Northeast um, could create products that were really unique and and showed the the spirit and a lot of the flavors of the area where we're living. So um, that's kind of how I cut my teeth on it. after doing that for a while, I got back into doing kind of fruit and vegetable production and eventually moved down uh, to Virginia. Um, And, you know, the cool thing about, about growing fruits and vegetables is that you really have your summers or your, your winters rather to do with whatever you want. Um, And so one winter while I was working, uh, I found that these guys at one eight in DC were opening up a a new distillery. And I kind of just showed up at the door one day and said, Hey, I've got nothing to do. I'm here happy to be free labor for you. Do you mind if I come help? Um, and luckily they were, they let me in the door and we're happy to have the free labor. And uh, um, I kind of never left. Um, so something that I completely fell in love with uh, the process, you know, the, the working with farmers that we do and um, you know, the end products we're putting out. So it's been, it's been really enjoyable and we've really loved the ride.
0: What's the um, what's the, what kind of crossover is there between like making wine in Germany. Because so I've been to Germany a few times, had some wine over there, and it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, haven't done Italy yet, but I, I loved uh love going over to Europe and and experiencing the different cultures there. But how was that? How did that kind of prepare you for like getting into grains and moving into the the spirit industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously most of what I was doing over there was very fruit focused, um, but it really taught me the the nuances of fermentation so most of what we were doing fermenting uh, over there was done with native or indigenous yeast so um you have to be really really careful with how you're handling that stuff and to make sure that fermentation goes uh complete and dry and you're getting the alcohol that you want and um, you're not getting any sort of infections or, or off flavors coming through so you have to pay really really close attention to it um, the one step that it, it doesn't add when you, when you look at making a beer or making a whiskey or something from grain um, is that you don't really have to cook it. Um, so you're really just taking a raw product and really trying to influence it as little as possible to make that end product, whereas you know, a beer or a whiskey, you really do have to have um, a lot of, of hands-on influence to the, to the raw ingredients that you're working with.
0: What's that transition like once you're, like, said, so you're going from raw ingredients to now you're cooking it, like how much of a, uh, how much growth or how much, uh, of a learning curve was there for you going from like wine into like you had your background with grains and, and growing, but, uh, now moving into like distilling.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, uh, it was a pretty steep learning curve. I definitely made a few mistakes along the way um you know it took us uh, a little bit of time and luckily we we had uh good mentors and good teachers that we could uh draw on so um alex and sandy uh or sandy wood and alex offer uh two founders and alex their head distiller um spent a, a little bit of time at smooth ambler kind of learning the process and and uh seeing everything that goes into it so we had a pretty good uh base knowledge and both alex and i spent a little time at Koval in chicago um, kind of learning the ropes, so that we knew uh, a little bit of what we were doing, so that we weren't just going to flush thousands and thousands of dollars down the drain. Um, but it definitely took a l- not so much time and effort to figure out what we were doing. You know, it's it's you can kind of read a recipe and and figure it out. You know, cook the grain, add enzymes, add yeast, and and things like that. It's it's not rocket science to figure it out. Um, what took us a little bit of more time is really kind of pinpointing that recipe and pinpointing exactly how we wanted the flavors to go. And not only from, from creating that raw product, but also how it's going to look and how it's going to taste after it's aged for a few years. You know, uh, we we both had kind of minimal experience um, allowing things to age in barrels for an extended period of time. So, you sort of have to extrapolate what that's going to look like after a couple of years. So that was definitely a a little bit of a learning curve for us, but it really gave us um, a great opportunity to work with um, a lot of really interesting ingredients and uh, a lot of our farmers helping us out along the way. So um, it took us about a year before, uh, for example, for our bourbon, which we'll taste in in just a little bit here, I'm sure, um, uh, actually proposed a strain of uh corn for us to use or a variety of corn that he thought would work really well as a bourbon which is our hickory king corn which is a a large kernel uh white dent corn um and so you know we'd already been making bourbon for about a year at this point and as soon as that stuff came off the still there was just this kind of creaminess and sweetness to it that we really just fell in love with um and we've used it for every drop of bourbon that we've produced since since then um so what is, what
0: is that like? And you have, I mean, obviously it's a science, you know, based like process that you're going through with, with making it, but I feel like with the blending side, there's gotta be kind of an art to it as well. I mean, how, how does that, how do those two like commingle in terms of mixing the the science of the distilling and then the art of blending it?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we always say about all the products that we make is that we kind of make it for ourselves and that, and then we hope that at the end of the day, someone else is going to like it too. That <laughs> there's enough people to kind of keep us in business. Um, you know, we're—I feel very fortunate in that. You know, I'm not walking in to a big brand where you know I don't have to make Buffalo Trace every single day and have it taste exactly the same, or someone's going to come back mm-hmm. and get mad at me. You know, we we produce products that have a fair amount of consistency to them, but we also produce products that we can take in whatever direction we want. So. Um, a lot of what I do on the blending side is saying, you know, I'll get kind of an idea in my head and say like, oh, I bet that X, Y, and Z flavor work really well together. Um, and then I just go back and I make a test batch of it and then, you know, do subtle tweaking, whether it's adding in another ingredient or taking something out or changing the proportions a little bit, you know, it's, it's, um, it's nice to have the ability to be able to, to do that and be kind of playful with it and, and produce something that's not just kind of like the same product day after day after
0: day. Sure. But, uh what kind of like overall creative control do you have over those types of things? Like, do you get kind of free reign to, Hey, like, let's mix and match. Let's try this out see how this one goes. And if it's not any good. You move on. If it's really good, like you move forward with it and how much of that goes through you or like somebody else.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, so from the blending side, it's it's pretty much the buck stops with me. Um, so I get a lot of the control over that. Now that being said, I had a lot of creative control in sort of crafting what our our bourbon and rye specifically were going to look like from day one. Now that they're to get, now that they're kind of out there, we do need to keep them somewhat consistent so that the amount of creativity I can put into that is is somewhat minimal. Um, but for example, for the bourbon. We had originally thought uh, when we started the distillery that we were going to release two different bourbons, uh, one that was a high rye bourbon and one that was a weeded bourbon. Um, and we got to the time where we thought that those were starting to become ready and we started to want to think about about putting that out as a bottled product. And for some reason, I got the idea in my head and I couldn't let it go that I wanted to see what they would taste like blended together. Um, so it was through trial and error and came up with, you know, 20, 25 different uh, attempts at coming up with a good recipe. We actually do blend those two, the high rye right and the weeded together now to create that, that flagship bourbon that we have uh, out there. So it was a little bit of creativity kind of on day one. Now that's for our, our district made lineup. So that's kind of our core everything made in house uh, lineup. And then we also have something called the untitled lineup, uh, which I know we're going to get to one of those today. Um, and that it's kind of like, do what you want, um, mm-hmm. which really, uh, a fun way for, um, not only me, but the, the rest of the team as well to, um, kind of come up with whatever we want. Um, I know our, our salespeople and marketing people would probably like it if I rein that in a little bit. So it was actually a little <laughs> bit easier to talk about, but, you know, we have, put out versions of that untitled series that are six, seven ingredients um, all coming from not only different base whiskeys going into them, but also different finishing process that we do as well um, to kind of create layers of flavor. And, and you know, those ones take a long time to kind of sit down and make sure that we do it right. Um, We've made some things that were quite honestly undrinkable, but obviously that's just for us. We, we haven't actually, least anything that's undrinkable, I don't think. Um, So, um, you know, that's really just we get ideas in our head and see what we can do to kind of piece them together in a way that that um, not only is a cohesive and a well structured whiskey, but also, um, you know, a lot of fun and something that you're not going to get anywhere else and something that can be really playful.
0: Um, Are those are those smaller batches?
1: Typically, yeah. So um, it depends on the particular uh, one that we're doing and and what it's going to be. So we have ones that are very strictly distillery only releases and those tend to be fairly small in like 100, 150 case uh, range because we're we're selling them all in house. Uh, We do have a couple that go out for distribution as well, which need to be a little bit bigger, but you know, those are all I think the largest one we've done was like 500 cases or so. So they're mm. all fairly, fairly small batch. I mean, everything we do is fairly small batch. We put out a batch of any of our flagship products. It's usually somewhere in that four to 500 case uh, ballpark as well.
0: Mm. Uh, so tell me, tell me a little bit about just 1-8 distilling in general. Like, kind of how did it? How did it get started? Um, why I was I always feel like there's a cool story behind why they end up getting started in the first place so I go back a little bit to the beginning of of 1-8 distilling in general
1: yeah so uh, I'll let me start with our name because that's always a question that we get fairly often so uh, 1-8 distilling was named after article 1 section 8 of the U.S. constitution uh, which amongst a few other things allowed a district to be created to be the seat of the U.S. government so it's kind of a little nod to our, our hometown of D.C. here uh, but we were started by uh, Sandy Wood and Alex Lauffer, um, our two co-founders. Sandy, who's our uh, uh, CEO and handles a lot of our uh, business side and paperwork side. He's a former lawyer. Uh, so it's really uh, helpful to have a person like that do all the paperwork for you. And uh, Alex worked in uh, bio labs and, and is very much a science focused uh, person. So uh, he became our head distiller, a uh, very good person to to have uh, in that role, who knows all the science very, very well, um, in a way that he can talk and go over my head very, very quickly as someone without a very strict science background. Uh, but they were college buddies um, and both ended up in the in the D.C. area um, and, you know, had uh, liked to hang out, like to drink whiskey together and just got it in their minds that they uh, wanted to craft something a little bit different than what everyone else in the, uh, in the country was doing. Um, and for them, it was really important to have something that that really focused on where we were and highlighting both the, the flavors that come out of the Mid-Atlantic region as well as um, supporting the local agriculture scene here um, in a way that really hadn't been done or hadn't been done in any sort of real structured way. Um, in the area. Um, so it was always kind of important from day one that uh, we knew we were gonna focus on whiskeys and uh, um, knew that was gonna take a little bit of time to kind of get off the ground. So uh, also wanted to focus on doing some of those clear spirits as well. So doing gin and vodka, um, as well as a, a barrel rested gin, which I think we're gonna to get to taste in a little bit here uh, as well, um, you know, and really just, it was important from day one, that, that the production side of the business was always going to sort of be the driving force. So, um, we wanted to have that ability and that, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? The, the ability and the experimentation, I guess, uh, to be able to put out kind of a large swath of products and really kind of focused on whatever we thought was, was good to be able to put out there and really kind of appeal to a large audience by doing so. Um, so we've done things like brandies, we've done uh, you know, some products that are hopefully gonna be released down the line, uh, working with some kind of alternative grains and things like that as well. So um, you know, we've got a, a pretty full Rick house these days of, of all sorts of experiments. Um, that we haven't quite rolled out to the general public yet, but but hopefully something that you'll see see down the line as well so um, but yeah, so one we've always kind of focused on um, really highlighting those ingredients uh, of the mid atlantic region and um, uh, being as experimental as we possibly can
0: how how i mean I looked on, on the website it looks like all the grains are coming within like five hundred miles of d c right
1: yeah, can most you- of it I would say. 90 to 95% of it is actually much closer to that within Mm. like 50 miles or so. So uh, we work with uh, two farms in Virginia and one in Maryland that are both within a couple hours drive. Um, The furthest that we get uh, grain shipped to us from is North Carolina, and that's all of our malted products, excuse me, malted products, or malted uh, barley, malted rye, and malted wheat Uh, come from a a malt house in Asheville, North Carolina called Riverbend Malt, which is really, really great. Um, small batch malt house that that we've worked with from from day one um so it it's the malting the the two kind of uh barriers to local uh, local ingredients or local uh products that we want to use have always been the malting and the malt houses and the barrel producers um so uh there weren't really a lot of local malt houses that were really close to DC when we started up um there have been a couple that have have opened since and their quality is not 100% there yet um but we do continue to kind of do some some experiments with uh some closer malt houses as well um and then the barrel side uh, we had been sourcing barrels from um uh, Independence Dave Company in, in which works both in Missouri and Kentucky um which are a little bit further afield than we'd like to go, uh, for that. Um, but you know, when we started up in, in 20, uh, 2014, um, you actually had to go on wait lists for barrels. You couldn't get them anywhere. It was so, so difficult to get on those wait lists. Um, and we could only, they would only allocate us like 40 barrels a quarter or something like that. It was insane. Um, that, that supply chain has, has changed a little bit in the subsequent years, but, um, you know, it was difficult. So we sort of had to take what we could get. And, and I don't want to say anything bad about independent state company. They, they make a really quality product. Um, but about a year and a half ago, we switched to a, a barrel company called the great West Virginia barrel company. So, um, get all of that, those out of, uh, white sulfur Springs, West Virginia, uh, we've been really happy with those guys, and and they really make a quality product. And we haven't released any whiskeys out of those barrels yet because they're only a year and a half old. But uh, the tasting that we've done out of them has been uh, has shown a lot of promise. So we're really uh, really excited about that collaboration as well.
0: It seems like there's you know from like the craft perspective, like there's a lot of different areas that keep popping up and becoming more and more popular. Um, like Colorado, for example. Um, what is that? What, like, how crowded is that space from like the mid-Atlantic region? Um, just in terms of, you know, how many, are there a lot of distilleries that are putting whiskey out, out there? Um, are you, are you guys kind of doing your own thing separate from, you know, what's going on out there in the region?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say the mid-Atlantic speaking generally has become, uh, kind of a hotbed of particularly of whiskey, uh, whiskey producers. Um, a lot of those producers are focusing on rye whiskey because rye whiskey has such a rich uh, agricultural heritage in the mid-Atlantic region. you know, you know, distilling's been done here since colonial times. You know the first distillery or the first major distillery in our region was George Washington's Mount Vernon. Um, and that was really the big uh, uh, product that his farm and his uh, estate was able to put out was was primarily rye whiskey. Now, um, I've had the rye whiskey from Mount Vernon and it's nothing like what we would consider any of the modern rye whiskeys today. It's interesting to, t- to taste as a novelty, but I can't necessarily recommend it. Uh, <laughs> but it really kind of served as um, this, this jumping off point to, to launch rye whiskey kind of in the, the consciousness of the Mid-Atlantic region. So there are some people out there who have kind of focused on rye whiskey. Some of the ones you may have heard of are like Sagamore,
0: mm.
1: uh, Catoctin Creek, um, or, uh, some of the whiskey producers in our area. Um, there haven't been a whole lot that have focused on bourbon specifically. Um, and the vast, and we do make a rye whiskey, but probably the, the vast majority of our, uh, production focus is on that, uh, producing that bourbon.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, obviously Pennsylvania seems like that's a big, uh, you know, hotbed for rye, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just because where we're at right here in, in Arizona, um, where a lot of it doesn't necessarily get out this way and like it's on the shelves, you know, for people to see. Um, but I think it's becoming more interesting for people to kind of branch out a little bit and get away from the like, idea that it has to be from Kentucky or, you know, Tennessee yeah. or something like that. They're just they're such good whiskey being released from other places right now. And you don't hear I, don't, I mean, we haven't heard of many coming from like the D.C. area or just the Mid-Atlantic in general.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's it's ama- It never fails to amaze me how many people I have on uh, going through a tour that we give in the distillery or something like that, and go, "Wait, you make a bourbon? How do you make a bourbon here? Can't Bourbon only be made in Kentucky?" And and Kentucky's done a really good job marketing themselves yeah. that way. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So bourbon you can make anywhere in the country. It does need to be made in the United States. It is a geographically protected spirit. Um, but there are some people doing some really cool stuff all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people out in Arizona doing some cool stuff too. I've, yeah. I've some like mesquite smoked whiskeys coming out. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the distillery right now. But- uh, there's
0: Thumb Butte out here. Uh, yeah. is it Advent- Adventurous Stills, I think, is out here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a couple. And they're popping up everywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's now uh, I forget when this happened. I want to say it was 2018. There's now a, a distillery making whiskey in every state in the country. It's um, so it's uh there's a lot of good stuff out there and there are a lot of people you know maybe trying to rush things or 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 do some things that are uh, a little bit shady but um <laughs> you know it's it's really a great time to be a whiskey drinker because there is so yeah. much variety out there and you know um really i think it's it's important that folks try not only what's local in their area um but but try everything you can get your hands on i mean if mm-hmm. you have the means to do it the only way you're going to learn about this stuff is to to go out and try everything that you can that you can
0: yeah.
1: i know i say that from a, a little bit of a position of privilege here um <laughs> in that i have access to to stocks of whiskey that most people probably don't and uh you know i can i can pretty easily call up a lot of the distilleries in the country and get my foot in the door if I needed to. But um, you know, that's the way you learn about this stuff. And it, yeah. I, it's un- interesting. I was looking through your, your blog before we did this, um, talking about kind of like the the whiskey unicorns and how it's hard, so hard to uh, to get your hands on the pappies and the, the wellers and the, and the stuff like that. Um, I agree with you. You don't need to spend that kind of money to, no. to extend your palate and to figure out what's out there. There's, there is whiskey at every price point. And by all means, I don't want to discourage anyone from tasting like the, the big boys in Kentucky either. You know, they all have whiskeys that are, are good and have solid entry price points and, and things like that. You know, I, I, it's interesting to me how often craft spirits gets lumped in with the craft beer world. And it's like, Oh, they're the same. They're on this kind of trajectory of growth and things like that. And I always like to kind of rein people back in and say craft beer filled a void. The beer that we were drinking in this country before craft beer was gross, garbage, Uh, trash. Yeah, it was Budweiser, it was Bush. It was, yeah, of course they had an easy time going into it and and blowing the roof off the thing because they were making something that actually had flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the, the case with craft spirits. I mean, crafts, the people, the guys in Kentucky were making a good product. They may not have marketed it to a premium consumer or uh, you know, they may not have had all these kind of six, $700 offerings like they do today, um, but they were making a good product. They may have just all lumped it into a, a, a plastic handle on the bottom shelf, um, but they knew what they were doing and they, and they um, were making a good product. What we have craft distillers have to do is really create a product that's different and says something. Sure. Um, that's one of the reasons that we've always wanted to focus on using those kind of heirloom grains and, and, uh, different varieties and, uh, you know, thinking of mash bills that might be a little bit different than, than, um, that kind of standard really high corn percentage. And then a little bit of of malted barley or a little bit of rye thrown in. Um, you know, we very much didn't want to stick to that traditional flavor palette of like super sweet candy bourbon, um, Mm. but create something with a little bit more nuance to it that kind of focused on, uh, you know, creating those sort of layers of flavor and and, and creating something that quite honestly, I think is a little bit more interesting to talk about.
0: When you mentioned like the beer and and then the, the craft industry filling a void for something that's not there and like you spent time in Germany. So I'm sure you had a beer or two while you were over there. And like, uh, I know like when I came back and I had a Bud Light for the first time, I was like, this is, this is so bad. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't drink it. Um, it's just so much different. And I, and I, I'm with you on like the craft distillery side where I feel like, you know, you get the big boys and they're always with their, you know, their corn, their malted barley and then rye or wheat or something. And then you get the craft distilleries that are adding like a fourth grain, And it it adds a different flavor that I think is not always seen with what's typically on the shelf. And I'm a big fan of like, go find what you can find. But like, there's a lot other, a lot of other brands and especially craft distilleries out there that are really good, you know, and most people like, they're not going to know they're drinking Pappy unless somebody said, Hey, here's some Pappy. And then you're excited because it's Pappy or, you know, something that comes out of a cool, you know, cardboard container. That's, that looks neat. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I always joke with a couple of other craft distillers that we want to pool our money, buy a bottle of Pappy and submit it to one of these uh, spirits judging contests that are, everything's tasted blind just to see how it would do. Um, You know, it's, it's good. I don't want to say that it's, that it's not good. Um, But is it worth four figures? I, I mean, I have a hard time paying four figures for anything, even a car. uh uh, you know i i think there's so much good stuff out there at a more accessible price point especially for people as they're they're learning about it and i this is one of the things that i always fault like the wine world for is that don't make your product priced in a way that it's intimidating for people to get into it um, I think the wine world has kind of corrected that over the last decade or so, but you know, you want people to like a feel welcomed to learn about a new new subject or a new uh, product that they haven't tried before. Um, but no one who's like, oh yeah, I might want to learn a little bit about whiskey is going to go out and spend hundreds of dollars on it. Like, no. you need to create something that's going to be accessible to a large swath of people, and I think that. Is, is something that, that you know, bigger distillers have, have done as well, but I think that's kind of always been one of the mantras of the craft distilling industry as well, is that we need to um, act as an educational resource for people who may not be familiar with, with um, whether it's whiskey or gin or, or vodka or tequila or, or, or what have you. you know, we need to create a community that's really welcoming and, and able to bring people into the fold
0: and not to go down into like the blame game but do you feel like that's a distillery issue that's happening or is that from like the independent stores that are selling it at marked up prices or is it the consumers that are willing to pay these outrageous secondary prices just so that they can get a bottle of something that you know their friends say are are cool and you should have
1: um yeah i don't know uh that's a good question i i you know, I'm not gonna fault. It's so hard to fault anyone along the way because everyone mm-hmm. you see that everyone is making rational choices. Um, even the person who is strictly like camping out to buy these whiskeys only to flip them mm-hmm. to make 500 bucks. It's crazy. Um, down the line, like if, if there's someone who's willing to pay it, like I can't fault anyone for doing that. The the yeah. thing that always bugs me is the is, or the like the trophy hunters where it becomes almost like a piece of art. Mm -hmm. And like, I have no, if, if you are in a financial position to go out there and spend two or $3,000 on a bottle of whiskey and you enjoy that, you share it with your friends. I have absolutely, I'm not going to do that, but I have absolutely no problem with anyone doing that. Um, what I have more of a problem with are like, uh, the people who have the trophy cases and the, uh, you, you know that stuff's never going to see the light of day. Oh. Um, and like, I I get it. I understand the status behind it and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's 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 a consumable product. It was mm-hmm. made to be consumed. You should consume it. Uh, we have a couple of stores in, in DC where it's almost like walking into a museum. Like you can find anything there that you possibly want. And it's got a huge price tag on it. And eventually someone's going to come along and pay that price for it. Um, and I enjoy just walking through and kind of seeing all the bottles that I'll never be able to drink. And, you know, that's great. But at the end of the day, it should be, it should be consumed or, and enjoyed or or people have kind of missed the point in my opinion.
0: No, I, I totally agree. You know, like you walk in places and like you said, it's a museum and they have got their, you know, like, and I think also that here's the other problem when you know how much things cost, like at retail, what's suggested retail. Mm-hmm. And you're going, you're going to spend $400 on a, buffalo trace product that doesn't cost you know a fifth of that i mean again like you said if you can afford it and you have the means to do that then have at it but but most people that end up getting them they sit on their shelf and they don't want to open them up because you know they spent a lot of money or they found it and it's a rare bottle or something like that but like you never actually get to enjoy it that sucks
1: well i think what people are scared of is that i had it and now i don't have it anymore now it's gone but but that's the whole point is for it to be gone. Like I, yeah. I have, I have very few bottles that hang up, hang around in my bar that just sit there. I mean, there's sure that's just taking up real estate to me. Uh, so um, now I will say we, we are fortunate to have a, a bar here in DC called Jack Rose that does a really good job. He, uh, the guy who, why am um, well, I spacing on the owner's name now? uh, it'll come to me later. Um, but he's been hunting whiskeys for decades now, um, brings them into the bar and sells them all by the poor. And I think that's a really great way to, even if these things are rare and hard to find, even if they're a little bit expensive, if you want to expand your palate and expand your knowledge about what's out there in the world of whiskeys, you know, whether it's bourbon, rye, scotch, Irish whiskey, Japanese Um, whiskey—it's a great place to go and just kind of get a good smattering of everything that's out there. Um, And you know, there are top shelf ones there, and you're going to pay for them, but you're paying them on the ounce price as opposed to on the bottle.
0: It's crazy. Like I remember, um, like being in Europe, and people were everybody's drinking gin, and I'm like, God, I just can't, I can't get into it, but. I mean, mean,
1: there's some people doing some interesting stuff with gin, especially if you spend time in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, like monkey 47 is based out of Germany, uh, doing some really crazy stuff with, with different botanicals. I think, well, I was going to say, I feel like a lot of people have this sort of, uh, It's almost like a PTSD or like a a very visceral reaction to gin. And I think a, a lot of that stems from probably a really questionable night that you may have had in college where you drank a lot of gin that probably came out of a big plastic bottle and you woke up with what with like a splitting headache and what felt like a dead pine tree in your mouth. Um, and the reason for that is that most of the gins that people are, I mean, you're probably drinking cheap gin, which is oh. that's problem number one. that explains the splitting headache. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I feel like the way most people get introduced to gin is through uh, what's called a London dry style of gin, which is really, really, really heavy in the juniper content. Um, and that's hence the like piney Christmassy, uh, flavor going on there. And it's, um, it's not for everyone. That's for sure. Um, so one of the things that we've always tried to do with our gins is, um, use a more muted, uh, amount of juniper and really kind of amp up some of the other botanicals that we use so that it's not just kind of that one note pine, uh, flavor coming at you, but it really has a little bit of nuance to it um
0: for, for you in distilling and blending is um like is making gin as um fun i'll just say fun as and in, in depth as like the whiskey and, and bourbon process
1: i mean i will say at least when we were first formulating the gin um the amount of blending we had to do to get it right was insane mm-hmm. we thought we'd be able to like we kind of knew where we wanted it to go we would pr- do a couple of test batches and we'd be ready to go. Um, it took us a solid six months to really, really get it dialed in. Um, and I don't want to take any credit for that. It was our, our former uh, assistant distiller, Max, um, who's now a distiller at Sagamore, um, who uh, really spent the time going through, I think he he must've gone through 60 different um, test batches of making sure that that we got a product that we were happy with. Um, and the problem is that it was just it was so easy to use that juniper as a crutch um, to like oh yeah we're going to make juniper the dominant force and it's really the rest is just going to be supporting players and it just really made a kind of one note gin that we didn't really love Mm -hmm. Um, and it had some of those medicinal notes that not everyone's into you know we wanted to create something that was um, really unique Um, and I think because you're using those kind of additional flavorings and additional botanicals gin is really a way for you to create uh it's kind of a blank canvas to do whatever you want you really can create something unique out of it um so it was a lot of fun uh to do it but it's it's very different from how we approach the whiskeys because a lot of the whiskeys you know it's at this point we've gotten to the the point where it's you know the same recipe that we're doing day after day after day mm-hmm. um, and seeing how the aging process and the barrel interaction works with it and the different flavor components that that creates over time um, is really astounding. You know, it, you, you don't really know until you've seen it firsthand that how much of that flavor component uh, from whiskeys comes out of that barrel. Um, and uh, you know, the, the cut of the wood, the thickness of the stave, the amount of char that's in that barrel, really has such a profound difference um, on the finished spirit. It's kind of a, it's kind of uh, unbelievable in a
0: way. Okay, so so you've got the gin and you've got vodka, right? It seems like everybody kind of does a like the clear spirits. Is that is that more? I don't want to say buying time, but is that a lot of that to like have something that to that can get out to market while whiskey's aging?
1: I mean, that's definitely part of it. Um, the, uh, the flip side of it is just kind of wanting to announce to people that you're there and this is what you're doing. So when we first opened up our distillery, we did a vodka and we also did a white or an unaged whiskey, mm. um, which is not uncommon for, for distilleries to start up, uh, start that way. Um, you know, for us, we wanted to take that opportunity to just, you know, announced to the neighborhood and announced to the city that we're here and we're doing this, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we could have been working for two or three years before we released one of our aged whiskeys or something like that. Um, but
0: nobody knows what's going on over there. (laughs)
1: Knows knows what's going on. And we wanted to create, uh, we wanted to create a little bit of a buzz and we wanted to create a little bit of like, if you like this, wait for what's coming. Um, you know, we're constantly going to be putting out, uh, new things and, and, um, know is a way for us to get a little bit of almost um buy-in or credibility from from other people and we knew to do that we really would have to create um something that was uh unique and special because you know it's it's not hard to make a vodka really the only thing that uh you need for something to be called a vodka is you have to distill it to 190 proof Hmm. which is easy enough to do Um, but, you know, most vodka, or I think the flavor profile of most vodkas is either it tastes like nothing or it mm. tastes like burning. Um, and neither of those are really kind of interesting to me. Um, so, one of the things that we decided to focus on uh, kind of from day one was uh, making a vodka that was um, using rye as the primary ingredient. And, you know, we talked about the, um, Rye's kind of importance in the mid-atlantic in, in terms of the agricultural heritage and that was one of the reasons um but part of it was just that rye has such a strong flavor that even if you distill it up to 190 proof it still has some flavor and it still has some characteristic that's going to come through and that was really important to us to have uh that spirit that was was saying something interesting um and you know i don't to be perfectly frank, I don't drink a lot of vodka in my day-to-day life. Um, but using the the vodka that we make, um, I actually can make a cocktail with it that's going to taste like something. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's um, that was important for us, and and it's definitely a product that we still um, we use heavily in our tasting room, and and one that we can stand behind. You know, I feel like in a lot of ways vodka acts as kind of that gateway drug for people to get into spirits in general. Sure. Um, you know, vodka is what they drank in college or yep. you know, what their parents drank. Or, um, you know, everyone knows the James Bond vodka Martini, shake and not stirred. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I feel like, you know, there's there's a reason that I think this may have changed recently, but but you know, up until a couple of years ago anyway, vodka was the number one spirit in the country and there's a, a reason for that um so we felt that vodka was a good way for to kind of get people in the door and be like hey we also make this other stuff you should try it too yeah and you know if that's a way for us to to get people you know not, not that we necessarily want to transition them off vodka but you know just expanding people's overall palate to to include things like gin and whiskey um i think is is kind of one of the goals of, of what we try to do on a day-to-day basis
0: all right. Let's, uh, let's, let's try a couple of these out. What do you, uh, what, what order? So we've got the, we've got the Ivy city gin. We've got the untitled whiskey number three. We've got the rye whiskey and the bourbon whiskey. So what do you, uh, what do you recommend we start with?
1: Do you have a glass of water yeah. with you? All right. Let's go ahead and start with the gin. Then um, yeah. I asked about the water because it is kind of a, a flavorful spirit mm-hmm. um, and you are going to want to cleanse your palate a little bit before we move into the whiskeys, but okay. um So um, I talked a little bit about kind of our flagship gin which is the the Ivy City gin um, so uh, it uses a combination of 10 different botanicals um, it uh, like I said the the kind of your standard London dry style of gin is very very heavy juniper um, so the our flagship gin, does have juniper in it that is one of the definitions of what makes a gin so you do need to have juniper in it um, but it's not kind of that over the hit you over the head with a Christmas tree kind of flavor to it um, it's more a little bit subtle um, I usually describe it as kind of a cedar flavor as opposed to a pine flavor but overall it's a very soft spirit um, a lot of nuance to it when we decided we wanted to do a barrel rested version of that gin we kept a lot of those same botanicals but we we amp them up a little bit so this one is a little bit heavier in that juniper content has a little bit more uh uh fennel a little bit of licorice added to it and then we add an orange peel as an additional 11th botanical Mm -hmm. so um, as you taste it you're going to notice a little bit of that kind of subtle sweetness to it and that all of that's coming from uh that orange peel so on the nose you're going to get a lot of that kind of citrus smell to it So that's coming not only from that orange peel being in there, um, but also uh, some of our other kind of citrusy botanicals, things like lemongrass, lemon peel, um, and coriander are going to give you those kind of citrus notes. You get a little bit of that influence of the wood as well. So Mm -hmm. um, the barrel-rested Ivy City Gin is uh, rested in uh, both ex-bourbon barrels um, as well as uh, new charred American oak, so just like our whiskeys.
0: This is Uh, a stupid question. When you say rested in, is that, is there a difference in aging or is it a, is it a timeframe that, that that...
1: kind of language we have to use because the American government is a little bit silly in how they write their laws. Gotcha. This has changed within the last year, but up until about a year ago, you could not call a gin aged. Hmm. Uh, We actually got the label for this gin rejected like three or four times because of terminology on it so we call it barrel rested because you're you weren't legally allowed to call a gin barrel aged
0: interesting Uh, how long how long does it rest there
1: so uh like i said combination of of, uh ex-bourbon and new american oak um the uh ex-bourbon barrels will be in there for about six months Um, the new oak will be in there for about three months and then we'll dump and refill that another Mm -hmm. three months and then uh blend all that together Wow so
0: it's way more citrusy than i would think from a gin
1: yeah yeah and that's kind of uh, a lot of that orange peel influence coming through Mm -hmm. but we what we were trying to do with this was kind of twofold we wanted to create something that was for gin drinkers something that would handle Really well, kind of your classic gin cocktails, especially your kind of stirred higher, um, more assertive ingredient cocktails, things like a Negroni, uh, which is mm. gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. I and mean, we wanted something that would kind of stand up to those more assertive flavors um, and really kind of be able to shine through um, them, which is is accomplished not only from the kind of amped up attend 10, only because of the amped up attendance 10 wasn't here, but also the uh, the alcohol percentage as well. Um, so you may have noticed or you may not have noticed on the barrel, this is coming in at 102 proof. Um, so a little bit uh, higher octane than, than a lot of the gins out there that um, usually come in around 80 proof or so. Um
0: doesn't and taste that, like 102.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes it a little bit of a dangerous spirit. Yeah, I <laughs> but, believe it. Uh, I think
0: so, I, this could probably sneak up on you a little bit
1: yeah and you know that was a lot of that focus of coming up with the botanical blend was making sure it was something that could kind of stand on its own and yeah. um, be something that really what that alcohol percentage does and this is going to be true of a lot of the spirits we're going to taste today um, alcohol is not only providing you the burn and like the feeling that alcohol gives you, but it also provides a lot of the flavor as well. Mm-hmm. And one of our tenants has always been that we want to give you spirits that are as full of flavor as we possibly can. If you want to add ice or if you want to water it down home, by all means do that. Um, we can, you can add your own water at home. You can't make a spirit more flavorful or, or, um, higher in alcohol at home sure. just you don't have the technology but you can always add your own water so bring it Prove down, it down. Whatever proof or whatever percentage you want um and you know a lot of that especially if you're going to use these things for cocktailing is going to be done through the stirring or the shaking process where you're adding a little bit of dilution in as well um, so this guy the barrel rested gin um we wanted to be able to kind of handle a little bit of dilution still have a flavor that that um that shines through um, I think that's there. kind of the,
0: the turnoff though, of gin in general. Like you said, it's like, it tastes like Christmas in a, in a cup, you know, and it's yeah, it's like, yeah. It, it's, there's no way you can like imagine that you're going to drink it neat. Cause it just, it's too much. This is uh, you could definitely drink this neat. It's got l- so many different flavors to it.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So I, I mentioned a little bit, we wanted it to kind of stand up in those, those uh, more assertive cocktails as well. But the other reason, and the reason that it, it rests in barrels is that we also wanted to give that kind of gateway point for people who were interested in whiskeys to start exploring gin. Um, sure. So a lot of this flavor components that you're going to see here, you know, they, they may seem a little bit foreign to you, but, you know, you're getting a little bit of those kind of vanilla notes, a little bit of um, that kind of barrel sweetness coming through, with a little bit of that char influence. Um, so this spirit does remarkably well in your your standard traditional whiskey cocktails as well when Mm. i make it fashioned at home this is the spirit that i use for it now really especially if i'm looking for something a little bit different or i'm looking for something in wintertime that's going to have a little bit more of that spice to it Mm -hmm. um it works really really well in that in that setting as well
0: yeah that's that's good stuff i mean as somebody i don't drink gin um but that's that's really good and it's not and it it may or may not be because of a plastic bottle in college but definitely, <laughs> you know, definitely like, possible like
1: we say, we, we've we've all been there we've all uh, been on a budget we all drank whatever came our way yep <clears throat> um, but you know it's uh, yeah we wanted to to make something that really could stand on its own and be a little bit more complex or at least enjoyable um sure. but it's really that the melding of all of those botanicals excuse me botanicals together as well as spending that time kind of mellowing an oak um, that creates that uh that cohesive um flavor profile to it so so one that yeah. we really have.
0: That's awesome. That's a, that's good stuff. Uh what do you, what do you go to next?
1: Um so next I'm going to move us on to the bourbon. Okay. So the district made uh, straight bourbon whiskey So we talked a little bit about kind of the other uh, distilleries in our area. So both the whiskeys, uh, the district-made whiskeys that we're going to taste today, um, were the first bourbon and the first rye whiskey um, released in DC since uh, since at least prohibition. So uh, one that we're oh. both both whiskeys that we're super proud of, um, and uh, um, have really kind of been been trailblazing uh, spirits. So. Like I said the, uh, before, the bourbon whiskey kind of its secret sauce is the use of that Hickory King corn. So that large kernel, uh, large white kernel dent corn um, really kind of gives, you're going to notice both on the nose and uh, on the palate as you take a sip, there's just this kind of like buttery creaminess that comes from that corn that is. Um, really enjoyable and really uh, is something that we fell in love as soon as this started coming off the still. You know, you could taste it in the, the raw white spirit um, and it, it persists through um, throughout the aging process into the, the finished product as well. So, so one that we're super, super happy with. Um, that Hickory King corn, there is a little bit of evidence that it was one of the original corn varieties that was used when bourbon was first coming into popularity in, in places like Kentucky. Um, and then sort of fell out of favor as people move, you know, the grain market is, is very, is very much a commodity market these days. Um, so most of the corn that you're seeing go into spirits, especially in the bigger whiskey houses um, has elo- eloquently named a variety of industrial dent corn number two. Um, so it's, you know, the same stuff that they're making corn syrup out of um, which is why that and the the combination of a really high percentage of corn in the mash bill is why you get that kind of super sweet brown sugary um, uh, flavor coming through in most commercial bourbons Um, you know we wanted to create something that was a little bit more structured a little bit more kind of nuanced to it Um, so the corn variety was a a good way to do that Um, uh, as well as just you know the the mash bill that we're using which is is kind of unique Um, so, uh, we're using a comparatively small percentage of corn to most commercial distilleries. So it's about 60%, uh, of the corn of the mash bill is comprised of corn. Um, then, like I said, we blend those two different, uh, uh, base bourbons together. So a high rye and a weeded bourbon, uh, as well. So in descending order, uh, the mash bill will go corn rye, wheat, malted rye, and then malted barley. Um, and that malted rye is really kind of one of the signature flavors that you're going to see that persists throughout our spirits. You'll get to see it in the rye whiskey in a, in a little bit more kind of concentrated form. Um, but it's a really, really interesting ingredient that that um, not a lot of... There are some distilleries working with it, but not a whole lot. Um, and it really kind of gives this interesting... Um, almost like crystallized honey um especially on the finish of the spirit coming through so so one we're really happy with. so
0: that that finish lingers nicely that sticks around i mean that really sticks around
1: and that's something that we shoot for 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 most of our spirits you know we want you to be able to kind of sip it enjoy it think about it yeah um and you know especially once it opens up in the glass if you let that sit for for 30 45 minutes Mm -hmm. um Really starts to linger on your tongue, even even all the more. It's really nice. So I have to ask: Are you a are you a whiskey purist? Are you a only drink it neat kind of person?
0: You know. Okay, so no, I normally do. I normally do just purely because I like it that way. Um, but I do like. I always try and throw a couple drops of water after I have it neat um, just to see what it's like. And then I will try it on ice um, just to see if it's if it changes in a way that I really like it. Um, There is one that is popular at the moment that I couldn't drink it uh, without ice. um, More than one ice cube Mm -hmm. and with a cigar. Um, (laughs) That was the only way I could like I could enjoy it. Um, but I normally do just drink it neat and I, at the very least start there, um, and try it out and then see if the water does add anything to it. Um, cause I think especially, I mean, I really like Irish whiskey as well. And so I think a lot of Irish whiskeys really open up with, with a little bit of water. Um, so I try to do the same, but I try to taste it both ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's I I asked because it's a question that, that we get a lot of like, is there a right way to drink whiskey? And and it's really a question or really a question that kind of bugs me. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like the right way to drink anything is however it tastes best to you. Um, and the, the kind of mantra out there that you get from a lot of people who are really into whiskey of like, Oh, you have to drink it neat. Or, you know, maybe a drop or two of water is okay. Um, Really, I think kind of shuts some people out of the yeah. the whiskey world in general. Um, but but I completely agree with you. I mean, we as we're going through the blending process and as we're coming up with new products, it's important for us to kind of hit that proof uh, right on, so that it is something that you can you can drink and you can enjoy right out of the bottle Mm -hmm. Um, but and that's if I'm doing blending or if I'm doing something in a professional capacity to make sure that it's a product that's good to go out the door I'm almost always drinking it neat or maybe you know a drop or two of water Um, but if I'm enjoying it at home I very rarely drink spirits neat out of the bottle unless I'm trying something new for the first time
0: um, yeah, unless it's something i like you said, if it's something new or if it's something, I just know that I like neat and I'm only going to have, you know, a little glass or two, yeah, you know, then I'll, then I'll have it neat, um, just to enjoy it in that way. But I'm, I'm with you and it drives me nuts. Like I remember reading Pappy land, which I thought was a great book, but it was uh Julian Van Winkle's grandson ordering, you know, Pappy on the rocks with twists of lemon and you know, the bar, the bartender throwing a fit over it. And it's like, you're telling the the grandson of the owner that he's drinking their whiskey wrong. Like it just shows like there isn't really a way to drink it. Right.
1: Yeah. Drink it how you like it. No, I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. That's uh, that's good stuff. I really like that. I really like how lot li- that's kind of one of the bigger ones for me. Like I can't, I don't, I don't really like whiskeys that go away quickly. Um, mm-hmm. I really like when it kind of lingers, especially like towards the back of your tongue or like the sides of your mouth. And um, that, that to me, it sticks around nicely. I, I dig that one for sure.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think that is another uh, kind of byproduct of not focus, and not to say that we don't focus on the corn, because the corn is the majority of the mash bill, so it definitely is kind of the the star um, of, or should be the star of any bourbon that you're drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like to not focus on that, like, super high corn percentage, super sweet whiskey, because those are the ones that tend to have that thinner, thinner body which leads to that kind of flat finish um or at least short finish on your tongue you know layering the 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 mash bill with that rye and the wheat and especially those malted grains coming through um is really how we uh make sure that we get get a spirit that's going to linger with you
0: yeah that's a yeah that's a good one i like that one i can see that one doing very well for sure (laughs) I,
1: i appreciate that now I know you're more of a bourbon person than a rye, but I'm going to Until on. recently,
0: I've, I've gotten into the rye a little bit more recently. Because it was the same, like my, not that long ago, actually, it was maybe within the last two years, I had my first, like, rye, a uh, mm-hmm. friend of mine's from Pennsylvania, brought a rye out, and I just, it wasn't for me. Um, there was just a, like a, it was like pungent, it just didn't, it didn't work for me. Um, yeah. And I think I started with something that was a little bit too heavy on the rye. And then I got like a, um, what is it written house, which was like the 51%. And so it was nice, like kind of change with a little bit of spice, um, not overwhelming with it. And then I started some more, uh, different rye and all of a sudden I'm like, man, I think I'm kind of digging these rye right now. They're, yeah. they're definitely interesting.
1: Yeah. So probably, and, and being that your buddy came from Pennsylvania, I can say this almost definitively, um, you were drinking what's called a Pennsylvania or Monongahela style rye, mm-hmm. uh, which, like you said, is just an overwhelming majority of rye grain going into the mash bill. So typically, <sighs> Pennsylvania style ryes are somewhere between ninety-five and one hundred percent rye going into the mash bill, and mm-hmm. that is going to create a spirit that is spicy, so like really heavy on those kind of clove, all spice. Yeah. Um, also, almost like medicinal or herby. So you may have noticed flavors of like mint or dill or um, fennel seed or, or things like that coming through. Um, So that was one of the more original styles of rye typically referred to as, as that Pennsylvania or Monongahela style rye. Um, So the other flavor of rye, which is where kind of Rittenhouse fits into a little bit better, Um, is what's referred to as a Maryland-style rye. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, what what district-made rye whiskey is going to be as well, Um, adds a little bit of corn into the mash bill um, to round it out. So the mash bill on this guy is about uh, 60% rye, uh, 25% malted rye, and about 15% corn to round it out. Um, And it's just going to create that spirit that's a little bit smoother, a little bit softer, a little bit easier to enjoy on its own. Um, Why I appreciate uh, a Pennsylvania or Heel style rye, uh, I wouldn't typically drink a glass of it. Like, if I was going to have a rye whiskey cocktail and I really wanted the punch of that spice to come through, um, mm-hmm. that's kind of to me where it has more of a place because you really want those kind of more assertive flavors of the rye grain coming through.
0: Yeah. Uh, I started to like the rise, like the heavier rise in old fashions. Yeah. Um, yeah so and because
1: we'll that sweetness to cut it. Uh, yeah, spice a little bit for sure. Yeah.
0: But then you kind of still have that, that spice that's like in the background a little bit, you know, it's kind of a nice mix versus even like using a weeded bourbon, you know, in an in a old fashioned just gets too like really doled down and soft for me. And I just, yeah. I I, can't, I don't get into it. Um, but that those ryes or even a, it's just a high rye bourbon, um, I think is really nice for those. Yeah. Yeah. I agree
1: with you. You know, you're getting a little bit of that that punch and and what you're doing there is you're adding a little bit of that supplemental sweetness almost like Mm. corn does in a a maryland style rye just to kind of make it a little bit more i don't want to say palatable is the wrong word but um a little bit kind of softer and easier to enjoy so this uh district made rye uh is like i said maryland style rye, so it does have a little bit of that corn in the mash bill to kind of sweeten and, and smooth it out uh, but also that really high percentage of malted rye. This is a little bit about what I was talking about when we were um, in tasting the bourbon. This is the spirit where that malted rye really shines through. Um, so that malted rye is going to give you these flavors of like uh, that crystallized honey, which is really the flavor that lingers with you on the finish. A ton um, of honey. What's that? That's a, it's all that yeah. tastes.
0: That's a ton of honey.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and also kind of flavors that are like. Uh, cola flavors, or like a cherry cola, uh, coming through, especially on the mid palate, is where you're gonna you're gonna get that. Um, almost all of that influence is coming through from that that malted rye. It's a really great ingredient. Um, I quite honestly don't know why more distillers aren't using it.
0: Yeah, why? I, I don't think I've heard really of anybody using a malted rye. Yeah, That's you know, how- I
1: think and 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 I I don't want to talk badly about anyone ever Um, but i think that a lot of people getting into craft distilling see the easiest or the path of least resistance as kind of mimicking the mash bills of bigger whiskey players just with you know local ingredients or smaller batches or what have you and at least nine out of 10 big distillers are using malted barley as their only malted sure. ingredient coming through. And so it's just kind of automatic in people's mind. Malted barley is also a lot easier to find as a base ingredient. You know, we, um, kind of fell into it just with the malt house that they, that we were using that they were really trying to push it as a, a new ingredient, mm-hmm. not a new ingredient, but a, a, an ingredient that they wanted to feature just because they were so passionate about it. Um, so as we were developing mash bills, it was just, it became something that we decided we really wanted to try it. And it's now featured in any spirit that we, I take that back. That's, that's and every spirit that we've released to date that's made from grain um, has that, that malted rye in some capacity to it, just because it adds such a great flavor component um, that I can't really see how you put in with another uh, another ingredient.
0: It's um, a, like what I like about it is it kind of, for one i don't love that mint flavor in rise it's 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 not bad like it's it, there's a place for it but again say college um it almost it almost feels like the the end of the night after you've had one or two menthol cigarettes and you're and it's oh. like yeah i know right i've never had a,
1: a night that bad in college
0: <laughs> me neither but i i know a guy um but like, but but this this doesn't have that minty like that minty um almost aftertaste not even a finish of it it's like an aftertaste that to me is kind of off putting like it has a spice yeah. and then it's like minty um this definitely i mean it's straight honey at the end it's yeah. it's really yeah. nice
1: yeah and like i said a lot of that's coming through from the malted rye um yeah the menthol never really bugged me as a flavor component um it was always more the like the herby flavors which i know mint is an herb but that like kind of dill fennel thing coming through um, that you'll taste in, in a lot of those Pennsylvania-style mm-hmm. ryes um, that just really it felt out of place, like that savory note in a rye whiskey just kind of feels out of place to me um, and so definitely kind of personally gravitate more towards those uh, those Maryland-style ryes um, yeah uh, lost my train of thought there, sorry <laughs> i in uh, on the right. So yeah, one that we're, we're super happy with, honestly, I wish we were making a whole lot more of it. Um, but I think, you know,
0: right. 94, 94.
1: Yeah. And 95 was on the bourbon. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't, that. um, you know, I think that at least in the craft whiskey world to, to date now, Bourbon is still king. Um, mm-hmm. But if if I could get a lot more people excited in rye and I could make a whole lot more rye, I'd be a much happier person. Um, yeah. I mean, that'd make me happy too. As you can see at the level of these bottles, uh, <laughs> nothing left here. Uh, if I'm pouring just a glass of whiskey for myself at the end of the day, that's what I grab.
0: Yeah. Um, I can see that.
1: Seven out of 10 times. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and and I I know talking to other distillers that I am not alone in that I've talked to several big bourbon producers who have said if we could make rye all day we'd be the happiest people in the world.
0: Is there is there a cost issue that makes it a little bit more preventative or, or is that just uh, it's a preference?
1: It's kind of it it's three things so it's it's preference um, mostly. Uh, what the market is saying. And I think when people get introduced to, to whiskeys or at least to American whiskeys, they always get introduced to bourbon first, Mm. Um, whether that's right or wrong. um, It's just kind of uh, usually what happens. And I would imagine probably when you got into whiskey, it was probably the same thing. Yeah, definitely. It's to bourbon first. Um, Cost is uh, not insignificant. So it is more expensive for us to make a rye whiskey than a bourbon um in terms of kind of a a proof gallon or an alcohol creation part of that is is a little bit of us shooting ourselves in the foot though um because we use such a high percentage of that malted rye malted grains in general are just much much more expensive and malted rye even more so than malted barley um you know the cost of our malted rye is probably have to look at our, our most recent invoices to make sure I get this right, but about five times the cost of oh. unmalted rye. Wow. Um, so there is definitely a cost to using that. Um, we hundred percent think it's worth it. And that's why we yeah. continue to do it um, because we like it so much. Um, and then the third is that, can I swear on this podcast?
0: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Okay. Rye is a real pain in the ass ingredient to work with. It is interesting really sticky really gummy um we used to this is going to get a little bit in the production side so feel free to edit it out no
0: know. it's interesting get i'm in
1: it. um our original uh mashing process we used what's called a shell or tube and shell heat exchanger which is essentially like uh a large canister with little pipes that go through it and the mash goes through those little pipes and the rest of the uh canister is filled with cold water and that's how we we cool the whole thing down um Mm. when we're we're done cooking we want to cool it to add the yeast um almost every time we made rye whiskey that thing would plug itself up and it would take like an hour and a half to two hours to get it unplugged Mm. um We've since switched the kind of heat exchanger that we're using to make that a hell of a lot easier for ourselves. But I can see why there are people out there who refuse to make against that, it. Yeah. It pain in the butt to deal with.
0: Um, but is it, it, does that like making a rye, like a straight rye or a higher percentage rye, is that, um, it, it, does the same, do the same problems exist with like a high rye bourbon? that, or, or, you know, even something with a higher percentage bourbon where you're not over like that 51% necessarily where you're like an actual rye.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're always going to have some of those production problems. Once you've included, you know, a couple of grains of rye, they start to compound pretty quickly. Um, you don't necessarily, it doesn't reach a critical mass until you get, I'd say at least above, above 50% in the mash. Okay. To worry about equipment clogging or, or things like that things will move a little bit more slowly and they might be a little bit sticky you might have to do a little bit of extra cleaning to, to um, make the process all, all run smoothly. Um, rye grain also tends to foam pretty heavily in distillation mm-hmm. so um, you can have situations where fermenters will actually overflow with the amount of foam that a high rye uh, percentage mash bill will produce um hmm. so we use a little bit of an anti-foaming agent which is essentially just like a uh a fat so adding a little bit of fat to the fermentation process will actually al- uh, not allow the bubbles in the foam to form properly so they'll just pop much more easily um you don't have to worry about things foaming out and over
0: yeah that's a uh th- i mean that's a good rye like the um I'm like you said. I'm surprised more malted rye is not used because that's. I mean, that's such an interesting flavor. Um, but again, like you said, it's a pain in the ass to use it, and so yeah. I think it makes one, it a little bit easier.
1: Most people are, are there. You don't see more people using it. Is that it's a they're not educated enough to know to seek it out, or sure. b they just have a hard time finding it. Um, you know, it's only there's only if I haven't done enough research to say this definitively, but. Um, not every malt house out there is making it available as a product. You know, most malt houses that you come into contact with focus on the brewing industry first, and the distilling industry kind of gets the scraps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you find a malt house who's willing to work with you to to get you the product specifically for distilling, um, that is a malt house you want to keep working with. And that's um, in River Bend. We definitely found found those guys who are you know they. The bread and butter of their business is still working with brewers mm-hmm. um, they're willing to work with us for pretty much any uh any grain that we want and i would i would venture a guess that we're probably buying more malted rye from them than anyone else
0: hmm.
1: um, I, don't, I don't know that for sure but I, I would venture a guess
0: seems fair to say I haven't heard, I haven't talked to anybody that says they're using malted rye. I mean, I've heard of people using different, like different strains of wheat or different strains of rye or whatever, but nobody's, I haven't heard of malted rye being used yeah, by anybody that's talked to.
1: starting to see it pop up a little bit more kind of here and there. Um, I know, for example, like Copper Seas, which is a, a, a distillery in upstate New York, makes a 100% malted rye whiskey as one of their core mm. offerings. So that's a really interesting one to, to try if you can ever get your hands on it. Um, the, you you are seeing a, a few more people start to to play around with it. You know, uh, you know, malted grains in general in distilling I think have fallen a little bit out of favor because the reason malted grain was originally uh, included in mash bills was so that you would have enough um, enzyme activity to mm-hmm. convert the starches that are in raw grains into something that was uh, more simple sugar, more fermentable, more digestible by yeast. Um, So it really was only kind of a fluke that malted grain ever became used in distilling or or, or anything like that. Um, You just needed that, that activity to make something like corn or unmalted rye be able to break down and make it fermentable. Um, now a lot of that is done through added enzymes in, during the mashing and the fermentation process. So really the only reason that malted grains are added into mash bills is for their flavor. Um, and you know, we just, we just love the way this, uh, this malted tastes. So that's why you're seeing it through throughout most of the products that we make.
0: Yeah, I get it. I'm in on that one. Um, okay. So, so the untitled whiskey, so I know on the, on the card that was sent, um, You've got a couple of different ones on here are so are the untitled ones always available or are these kind of a like you were talking we talked about them a little bit earlier but um are these more of like the rye and the bourbon and the gin or those are more like always offered and then these are more special issued i guess we call it
1: excuse me yeah um so anything that's in that district made line is going to be our our core lineup more or less always available you come to see us, you talk to any of the bars in town or or anything like that, you'll always be able to find this. The Untitleds are a little bit more of that kind of small batch limited release um, thing where they might be here one day and they might be gone the next. Mm -hmm. Um, So like we talked about before, that Untitled series is really a way for us to be um, as playful and kind of experimental as possible. The vast majority of the base whiskeys that we have go into those, uh, untitled whiskies are whiskies that we've sourced. Uh, so they're whiskies that, that were originally distilled in another distillery. And we want to be completely upfront with that as much as we can. Um, but we never wanted to get into a position where we're just kind of taking that whiskey out of the barrel, slapping our own label on it and sending it wow. out the door. Um, so we developed, uh, a, a Cast finishing program. So basically, taking that whiskey out of its original barrel, putting it in a barrel that had previously held something else. Um, and, you know, we've played around with different kinds of blending techniques and, and ways to kind of layer flavor um, using those different finishes in a way that I think is really interesting and really um, allows us to create different flavor profiles that you don't necessarily typically see. Um, at least in American whiskey, you know, you, you, you'll you see some of them in Scotch whiskey or Irish whiskey or mm. places like that. But um, I think we've kind of um, really kind of tried to lead the charge of, of these different types of finishing processes that you can do uh, on these whiskeys. So most of them, we will create a batch and that is the only time that batch will ever be released. Um, mo- quite frankly, enough of them are so complicated that They'd be very difficult to make again, um, even if I wanted to make them again.
0: Yeah, I was just reading up on this batch, this uh, this number three. I can't imagine this is something you could do all the time.
1: Yeah, so so Untitled Three is a little bit interesting in that it is one the one that we've repeated the most times. Um, really? so I think we're up to batch six of it now. So uh, one we did in collaboration with a local coffee roaster, um, and we like to do as many of these as collaborations as we can, because then both we and the company that we're working with both get a product out of it, sure. yeah. which is always uh, really interesting. Um, so uh, we did it with the local coffee roaster, gave them bar- bourbon barrels. They rested uh, roasted coffee beans in them, let them sit in there for I think about eight weeks, uh, in this case, took it out and made a bourbon finished nitro cold brew coffee out of it, which was Holy delicious. Um,
0: yeah, I'm in on that too. <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, unfortunately, very, very limited release. on yeah, that. I bet. They, don't, they don't keep it around that often. Um, but then gave those bourbon barrels or those uh, coffee barrels back to us. We put uh, weeded bourbon back in them and let it sit for uh, about six months. Um, and it just really transforms the overall flavor profile uh, of that whiskey. So we decided to use a weeded bourbon because we wanted something that was a little bit of a kind of sweeter, softer base. So those kind of um, sweeter, bready notes um, really work well uh, paired with kind of the the kind of earthy, uh, acidic notes of the coffee coming through. So yeah,
0: I can't, see, I, I can't see I can't see a rye being used with this.
1: Yeah. You know, funny, funny. You should say that we were just thinking about, uh, not trying this with the rye whiskey as well. Really? So I'll, I'll let you know.
0: I yeah. Think. Let me let me know how that goes. Cause I can see what you're saying. Like the weeded, how it kind of softens it up a little bit. And so if you get something that's like a, the coffee gets overwhelming, I think you have the, the coffee with the rye. It's either going to be interesting or yeah, like not two
1: very assertive flavors that are, that, that could potentially, uh, butt heads, uh, or be awesome. Yeah. Who, and that's why we try things. <laughs> the nose
0: on this is so good. Have. Yeah. <laughs> At least you uh, don't have to share with anybody.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, the beauty of this business is that all of my mistakes are my own yeah. and that no one else has to ever find out about them. Um, so, yeah, the nose on this guy, you getting a lot of those kind of roasty notes from the coffee, not necessarily something that I would identify as coffee right off the bat. You know, if uh, I, I were th- to blind blind taste you on this um, i think you would have a hard time kind of pinpointing that coffee flavor or at least on the
0: The nose i I agree it doesn't there's not like a coffee like it smells like you said roasted but i don't get Uh, coffee on it yeah
1: it's funny i was pouring this out for uh so when we do tours of the distillery we always have a tasting at the end and i've poured this out for for all sorts of people but it wasn't until the, I was getting kind of feedback from some of the people I was tasting out one time that uh, a guy said to me, all I get on the nose is jalapeno. And I was like, I went back to it. And I was like, not getting that. yeah, really? You don't get it? I was, no. Like, damn, if he's not, not right. I get a little bit of that kind of vegetal uh, flavor or not flavor, but nose coming through and the aroma. There's definitely a little bit of, mm. maybe not jalapeno, but but definitely something vegetal going on there a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think I think when I think jalapeno, I think that spice. I don't get like a spice yeah, you're from not it.
1: Getting the, not getting the spice, but
0: but vegetal might be bell more
1: bell pepper or, or bell pepper. Yeah. Like yeah, I could go green bell pepper. Yeah, maybe that's that's a better way to describe it. But
0: but I don't get like a spice like from a jalapeno.
1: Yeah, you're definitely not getting any of the uh, that spiciness coming through. And then when you taste it, you're definitely going to hopefully recognize the the coffee a little bit more, especially on that finish. Once you take that breath in after you you swallow, that's where you kind of notice the coffee influence coming through.
0: Mm-hmm. I think right away, it's like still that kind of bell pepper, vegetal, like aroma or, or like the very front of that flavor. But then you definitely get coffee.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, like after I've taken a sip of this, if I, A, it, it lingers with you. This is going to mm-hmm. be a flavor that's going to stick in your mouth probably four or five minutes. Um, yeah. But if I were to have severe amnesia or something like that and thinking in two or three, time, three minutes time, I wouldn't be able to tell if I just had a sip of whiskey or if I just had a sip of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely a lot of that, that coffee influence coming through. Yeah, you're not
0: getting strong whiskey notes for sure
1: um you know one that uh i think works really well is kind of an after-dinner sipper you know you you kind of please both of your crowds both the people who want whiskey after dinner mm-hmm. and the people who want coffee after dinner um so it's a good way to kind of bridge that gap um also works really well in uh your kind of um more spirit focused whiskey cocktails as well. So my kind of go-to cocktail with this guy um, is to do a uh, a maple old fashioned to so use maple as the sweetening base on it. put a couple of dashes of black walnut bitters into it so you get a little bit of that kind of nutty uh, earthy flavor to it um, and then a healthy healthy uh, pour the whiskey on top of it um, works really really
0: well. I could see that one. Being dangerous as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, super easy
0: sipper. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is so interesting.
1: So, yeah, we use that Untitled series. Um, you know, this is really where we get to have more fun or, or at least, you know, be a lot more experimental. You know, I probably... If not every week, at least every other week, go back and play with some of our finishing stocks and just try to come up with something new. Sure. You know, I'll get I'll get an idea, or you know, it, it sounds cliche, but I can't tell you how many of these have come to me in dreams, um, where you just get like, "Hey, I think these work well together," and you just go yeah. and you know, with, try it out with, with beakers and and uh, syringes and stuff like that. Make up a little batch of it, and you know two thirds of the time I'm, I'm way off and it's not good. And I, I have to, um, start from square one, but you know, about a third of the time we get something that's pretty good. And about 10% of the time we get something that's phenomenal. Um, and I like to think that only the phenomenal ones make it out the door.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of the goal. I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything, um, out of just out of personal curiosity, like I know, the number nine batch seven mentioned like it's a fruit forward space side scotch type is there anything that you have that is peated or along those lines with like that smoky you know isla type type flavoring yeah
1: not really um i mean this is probably the closest one to giving you any sort of smoke, smoke um we did uh we've done two that have been kind of more in that space side vein um the number four which was originally kind of the companion uh to number three so we did it with unroasted coffee beans hmm. um it's one that talk about limited batch we'll never do it again uh definitely one we're never going to do again because and and someone should have thought of this and we're, we're not idiots i swear um but The coffee roaster took the unroasted coffee beans out of the barrel. They were soaked in high-proof whiskey, put them in their roaster, immediately started a fire. Um, So they did not get a a usable product out of that. Um, We really liked the whiskey that came out of it, but they uh, made it very, very clear that they were not going to do that one again. (laughs) They just bought the green beans from them. Um, So probably not one you'll see again. Um, a similar one we did, uh, or titled whiskey number 12 was done with a local chocolate maker. Um, hmm. and they put, uh, cocoa nibs in the barrel, took them out, made a, both a bourbon and a rye finished chocolate bar. Um, and then we put whiskey back in those barrels, um, oh. and picked up a lot of these kind of fruity floral notes, very delicate. Um, again, you'd be kind of hard pressed to say that it was necessarily chocolate. Mm -hmm. At least on the nose, you get a little bit more of it on the finish of the whiskey, Um, but very, very delicate. um, Something that I wasn't wasn't necessarily expecting um, from that finishing process. Um,
0: That's got to be so much fun. I mean, just throwing out ideas, going, "Hey, let's give this a try. Let's see how this goes." I mean, it's not
1: not only fun just internally in terms of like coming up with the ideas, but to be able to work with people outside of the building and other businesses, and other especially local. Um, to try to collaborate on on things where we can both benefit from it is really kind of uh, what gets me jazzed about these projects. All
0: right. I don't want to take up your entire night. You've given me a lot of time and I appreciate it, but tell me a little bit um, for one about like distribution and also can you, uh, can it be ordered online?
1: Yeah. Good question. Uh, So distribution, we are distributed currently in uh, DC, Maryland, Delaware, Illinois Colorado and Missouri um, so fairly limited uh, distribution footprint um, all of our stuff can be uh, ordered online not through us um, but through a couple of our retailers uh, one of them is a local DC uh, um, liquor store called Schneider's which you can find them uh, online at cellar.com. Uh that's seller like wine cellar c-e-l-l-a-r.com um, they can ship to most states. I think there's a couple where, where the laws make it a little bit difficult, um, but for the most mass, uh, vast majority of states, they can ship. Um, and then those uh, of your listeners who are local in the, the kind of, excuse me, uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia area, um, we do have a tasting room that's open. Uh, we're open for retail from Wednesday through Sunday, and our tasting room currently is just open Saturdays uh for people to come in and and try flights of uh of spirits and things like that. Uh currently we're not giving tours, but we're hoping to to start those up again uh pretty soon.
0: And what uh what about social media? Where are you guys out on social media? What's a good way so for people to follow you social guys along?
1: Media, uh we're uh on uh Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook uh at 18D. Uh
0: all spelled out. Awesome. I really appreciate your time. This was awesome. Yeah, was um de- de- I definitely need to find the bottle of that rye because that was outstanding. That, that was my that was my favorite awesome. one. Awesome. That was that uh, outstanding. Yeah. So, so we can
1: we can find a way to make that happen for you.
0: Yeah. Gotta get gotta get the get some links out as soon as I post this. But thanks so much, Steve. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Uh, thanks, this was thanks, this thanks. was really cool. Thank you so much.
1: And uh good luck, uh good luck to your team this year.
0: I appreciate it. I, I appreciate you wearing a white Sox hat and not a cubs hat.
1: Anytime. Always have <laughs>
0: to <photo>. put <laughs> All right. Take care.
1: All right. See you later. Bye. Take
0: care.